Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. Today we are reading Imprisoned with the Pharaoh, Chapter 2. And now, on with our story time. After the Temple of the Sphinx, we made the conventional circuit of the Pyramid Plateau, examining the Second Pyramid and the peculiar ruins of its mortuary temple to the east, the Third Pyramid, and its miniature southern satellites and ruined eastern chapel, and the rock tombs and the honeycombings of the Fourth and Fifth Dynasties, and the famous Campbell's tomb, whose shadowy shaft sinks precipitously for fifty-three feet to a sinister sarcophagus, which one of our camel drivers divested of the cumbering sand after a long descent by rope. Cries now assailed us from the great pyramid where Bedouins were besieging. A party of tourists with offers of speed in the performance of solitary trips up and down. Seven minutes is said to be the record for such an ascent and descent, but many lusty sheiks and sons of sheiks assured us they could cut it to five if given the requisite impetus of liberal bakesh. They did not get this impetus, though we did let Abdul take us up, thus obtaining a view of unprecedented magnificence. This included not only remote and glittering Cairo, with its crowned citadel background of gold, violet hills, but all the pyramids of the Memphian district as well, from Abu Roche on the north to the Dasher on the south. The Saqqara Step Pyramid, which marks the evolution of the low Mastaba into the true pyramid, showed clearly and alluringly in the sandy distance. It is close to this transition monument that the famed tomb of Pameb was found, more than 400 miles north of the Theban rock valley where King Dad sleeps. Again I was forced to silence through sheer awe. The prospect of such antiquity and the secrets each monument seemed to hold and brood over filled me with a reverence and sense of immensity nothing else has ever given me. Fatigued by our climb and disgusted with the importunate Bedouins whose actions seemed to defy every rule of taste, we omitted the arduous detail of entering the cramped interior passages of any of the pyramids. Despite this, we saw several of the hardiest tourists preparing for the suffocating crawl through Cheops's mightiest memorial. As we dismissed and overpaid our local bodyguard and drove back to Cairo with Abdul Race under the afternoon sun, we half regretted the omission we had made. Such fascinating things were whispered about lower pyramid passages, not in the guidebooks. Passages whose entrances have been hastily blocked up and concealed by certain archaeologists who had found and begun to explore them. Of course, this whispering was largely baseless on the face of it, but it was curious to reflect how persistently visitors were forbidden to enter the pyramids at night, or to visit the lowest burrows and crypt of the Great Pyramid. Perhaps in the later case, it was a psychological effect which was feared. 
the effect of the visitor of feeling himself huddled down beneath a gigantic world of solid masonry, joined the life he has known by the merest tube in which he may only crawl, in which any accident or evil design might block. The whole subject seems so weird and alluring that we resolve to pay the Pyramid Plateau another visit at the earliest possible opportunity. And for me, this opportunity came far earlier than I expected. That very evening, the members of our party feeling somewhat tired after the strenuous program of the day, I went alone with Abdul Race for a walk through the picturesque Arab quarter. Though I had seen it by day, I wished to study the alleys and bazaars in the dusk, when rich shadows and mellow gleams of light would add to their glamour and fantastic illusion. The native crowds were thinning, but were still very noisy and numerous when we came upon a knot of reveling Bedouins in the silken nashim, or bazaar, of the coppersmiths. Their apparent leader, an insolent youth with heavy features and saucily cocked tarbush, took some notice of us, and evidently recognized with no great friendliness my competent, but admittedly supercilious and sneeringly disposed guide. Perhaps, I thought, he resented that odd reproduction of the Sphinx's half-smile which I had often remarked with amused irritation. Or, perhaps he did not like the hollow and sepulchral resonance of Abdul's voice. At any rate, the exchange of ancestrally opprobrious language became very brisk. Before long, Ali Aziz, as I heard the stranger called, when called by no worse name, began to pull violently at Abdul's robe. This action was quickly reciprocated, and led to a spirited scuffle in which both combatants lost their sacredly cherished headgear, and would have reached an even dire condition had I not intervened and separated them by main force. My interference, at first, seemingly unwelcome on both sides, succeeded at last in effecting a truce. Sullenly, each belligerent composed his wrath and his attire, and with an assumption of dignity as profound as it was sudden, the two formed a curious pact of honor, which I soon learned is a custom of great antiquity in Cairo, a pact for the settlement of their difference by means of a nocturnal fistfight atop the great pyramid, long after the departure of the last moonlight sightseer. Each duelist was to assemble a party of seconds, and the affair was to begin at midnight, proceeding by rounds in the most civilized possible fashion. In all this planning, there was much which excited my interest. The fight itself promised to be unique and spectacular, while the thought of the scene on that hoary pile, overlooking the antediluvian plateau of Giza, under the wane moon of the pallid, small hours, appealed to every fiber of imagination in me. A request found Abdul exceedingly willing to admit me into his party of seconds, and all the rest of the early evening I accompanied him to various dens in the most lawless regions of the town, mostly northeast of Azbekia, and there he gathered one by one a select and formidable band of congenial cutthroats as his pugilistic background. 
Shortly after nine, our party, mounted on donkeys, bearing such royal or tourist-reminiscent names as Ramses, Mark Twain, J.P. Morgan, and Minnehaha, edged through street labyrinths both oriental and occidental, crossed the muddy and massed forested Nile by the bridge of the bronze lions, and cantered philosophically between Labax and the road to Giza. Slightly over two hours were consumed by the trip, toward the end of which we passed the last of the returning tourists, saluted the last inbound trolley car, and were alone with the night, and the past, and the spectral moon. Then we saw the vast pyramids at the end of the avenue, ghoulish, with a dim, atavistical menace, which I had not seemed to notice in the daytime. Even the smallest of them held a hint of the ghastly, for it was not in this that they had buried Queen Nidocris alive in the Sixth Dynasty, subtle Queen Nidocris, who had once invited all her enemies to a feast in a temple below the Nile, and drowned them by opening the water gates. I recall that the Arabs whisper things about Nidocris, and shun the third pyramid at certain phases of the moon. It must have been over her that Thomas More was brooding when he wrote a thing muttered about by Memphian boatmen. The subterranean nymph that dwells, mid sunless gems and glories hid, the lady of the pyramid. Early as we were, Alizis and his party were ahead of us. We saw their donkeys outlined against the desert plateau at Kalfrel, Haram toward the squalid settlement close to the Sphinx. We diverged instead of following the regular load to the Minna House. Some of the sleepy, inefficient police might have been observed there and halted us. Here, where Bedouin stabled camels and donkeys in the rock tombs of Kefren's courtiers, we were led up the rocks and over the sand to the Great Pyramid and up whose time-worn sides the Arabs swarmed eagerly, Abdul Race offering me assistance which I did not need. As most travelers know, the actual apex of this structure has long been worn away, leaving a reasonably flat platform twelve yards square. On this eerie pinnacle a squared circle was formed, and in a few moments the sargonic desert moon mirrored down upon a battle which, but for the quality of the ringside cries, might well have occurred at some minor athletic club in America. As I watched it, I felt that some of our less desirable institutions were not lacking, for every blow, feint, and defense bespoke stalling to my not-experienced eye. It was quickly over, and despite my misgivings as to methods, I felt a sort of proprietary pride when Abdul Race was adjudged the winner. Reconciliation was phenomenally rapid, and amidst the singing, fraternizing, and drinking which followed, I found it difficult to realize that a quarrel had ever occurred. Oddly enough, I myself seemed to be a more center of notice than the antagonists, and from my smattering of Arabic I judged that they were discussing my professional performances and escapes from every sort of manacle and confinement. This was in a manner which indicated not only a surprising knowledge of me, but a distinct hostility and skepticism concerning my feats of escape.
It gradually dawned on me that the elder magic of Egypt did not depart without leaving traces, and that fragments of a strange secret lore and priestly cult practices have survived surreptitiously to such an extent that the prowess of a strange Hawi or magician is resented and disputed. I thought of how much my hollow-voiced guide Abdul Race looked like an old Egyptian priest or pharaoh or smiling sphinx, and I wondered. Suddenly something happened, which in a flash proved the correctness of my reflections and made me curse the denseness whereby I had accepted this night's events as other than the empty and malicious frame-up which they now showed themselves to be. Without warning, and doubtless in answer to some subtle sign from Abdul, the entire band of Bedouins precipitated itself upon me, and having produced heavy ropes, soon had me bound as securely as I was ever bound in the course of my life, either on stage or off. I struggled at first, but soon saw that one man could make no headway against a band of over twenty sinewy barbarians. My hands were tied behind my back, my knees bent to their fullest extent, and my wrists and ankles stoutly linked together by unyielding cords. A stifling gag was forced into my mouth, and a blindfold fastened tightly over my eyes. Then, as Arabs bore me aloft on their shoulders, and began a jouncing descent of the pyramid. I heard the taunts of my late guide, Abdul. He mocked and jeered delightedly in his hollow voice, and he assured me that I was soon to have my magic powers put to a supreme test, which would quickly remove any egotism I might have gained. Egypt, he reminded me, is very old, and full of inner mysteries and antique powers not even conceivable to the experts of today and whose devices had so uniformly failed to entrap me. How far, or in which direction I was carried, I cannot tell, for the circumstances were all against the formation of any accurate judgment. I know, however, that it could not have been a great distance, since my bearers at no point hastened beyond a walk, yet kept me aloft a surprisingly short time. It is in this perplexing brevity which makes me feel almost like shuddering whenever I think of Giza and its plateau, for one is oppressed by hints of the closeness to everyday tourist rats and what might existed then and might exist still. The evil abnormality I speak of did not become manifest at first, setting me down on a surface which I recognized as sand rather than rock. My captors passed a rope around my chest, and dragged me a few feet to a ragged opening in the ground, into which they presently lowered me with much rough handling. For apparent eons, I bumped against the stony irregular sides of a narrow hewn well, which I took to be one of the numerous burial shafts of the plateau, until the prodigious, almost incredible depth of it robbed me of all bases of conjecture. The horror of the experience deepened with every dragging sound, that any descent through the sheer, solid rock could be so vast without reaching the core of the planet itself, or that any rope made by man could be so long as to dangle me in these unholy and seemingly fathomless profundities of nether earth. 
These were beliefs of such grotesqueness that it was easier to doubt my agitated senses than to accept them. Even now, I am uncertain, for I know how deceitful the sense of time becomes when one is removed or distorted. But I am quite sure that I preserved a logical consciousness that far, that at least I did not allow any full-grown phantoms of imagination to a picture hideous enough in its reality and explicable by a type of cerebral illusion vastly short of actual hallucination. All this was not the cause of my first bit of fainting. The shocking ordeal was cumulative, and the beginning of the later terrors was a very perceptible increase in my rate of descent. They were paying out that infinitely long rope very swiftly now, and I escaped cruelly against the rough and constricted sides of the shaft. I shot madly downward. My clothing was in tatters, and I felt a trickle of blood all over, even above the mounting and excruciating pain. My nostrils, too, were assailed by a scarcely definable menace, a creeping odor of damp and staleness curiously unlike anything I'd ever smelled before, and it had faint overtones of spice and incense that lent an element of mockery. Then the mental cataclysm came. It was horrible, hideous beyond all articulate description, because it was all of the soul, with nothing of detail to describe. It was the ecstasy of nightmare and the summation of the fiendish. The suddenness of it was apocalyptic and demonic. One moment, I was plunging agonizingly down that narrow well of million-tooth torture. Yet the next moment, I was soaring on bat wings in the gulfs of hell, swinging free and swoopingly through illimitable miles of boundless, musty space, rising dizzily to measureless pinnacles of chilling ether, then diving gaspingly to sucking nadirs of ravenous, nauseous, lower vacua. Thank God for the mercy that shut out in oblivion those clawing furies of consciousness which half unhinged my faculties and tore harpy-like at my spirit. But one respite, short as it was, gave me the strength and sanity to endure those still greater sublimations of cosmic panic that lurked and gibbered on the road ahead. It was very gradually that I regained my senses after that eldritch flight through the sticky in space process was infinitely painful, and colored by fantastic dreams in which my bound and gagged condition found singular embodiment. The precise nature of these dreams was very clear while I was experiencing them, but became blurred in my recollection almost immediately afterward, and was soon reduced to the merest outline by the terrible events, real or imaginary, which followed. I dreamed that I was in the grasp of a great and horrible paw, a yellow, hairy, five-clawed paw, which had reached out of the earth to crush and engulf me. And when I stopped to reflect what that paw was, it seemed to me that it was Egypt. In the dream I looked back at the events of the preceding weeks, and I saw myself lured and enmeshed little by little, subtly and insidiously, 
by some hellish ghoul spirit of the Elder Nile sorcery. Some spirit that was in Egypt before ever man was, and that will be here when man is no more. I saw the horror and unwholesome antiquity of Egypt, and the grisly alliance it has always had with the tombs and temples of the dead. I saw phantom processions of priests with the heads of bulls, falcons, cats, and ibises. Phantom processions marching interminably through subterraneous labyrinths and avenues, all of titanic propylaea, beside which a man is as a fly, and offering unnameable sacrifice to indescribable gods. Stone colossi marched in endless night, and drove herds of grinning andro-sphinxes down to the shores of illimitable stagnant rivers of pitch. And behind it all, I saw the ineffable malignity of primordial necromancy, black and amorphous, and fumbling greedily after me in the darkness to choke out the spirit that had dared to mock it by emulation. In my sleeping brain, there took a shape of melodrama, sinister, hatred, and of pursuit, and I saw the black soul of Egypt singling me out and calling me in inaudible whispers, calling and luring me, leading me on with the glitter and glamour of the Saracenic surface, but ever pulling me down to the age-mad catacombs and horrors of its dead and abysmal pharaonic heart. And the dream faces took on human resemblances, and I saw my guide, Abdul Race, in the robes of a king, and the sneer of a sphinx on his features. I knew that those features were the features of Kephren the Great, who raised the second pyramid, carved over the sphinx's face in a likeness of his own, and built that titanic gateway temple whose myriad corridors the archaeologists think they've dug out of the cryptical sand and uninformative rock. And I looked at the long, lean, rigid hand of Kephren, the long, lean, rigid hand, as I had seen it on the diorite statue in the Cairo Museum, the statue they had found in the terrible gateway temple. And I wondered, but I had not shrieked when I saw it on Abdul Race. That hand, it was hideously cold, and it was crushing me. It was the cold and cramping of the sarcophagus, the chill and constriction of unrememberable Egypt. It was nighted, necropolitan Egypt itself, that yellow paw, and they whisper such things of Kephren. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams.